Old Testament book of Amos, and we're going to be in chapter 5, and you can use the index or your phone or whatever else to help you find Amos if you're not real uh, familiar with it. But uh, last week we started a new sermon series uh, called True Justice in an Unjust World. And we talked about as uh, kind of laying a foundation, which we're doing again uh, this week and uh, really next week, we're going to begin to more specifically talk about uh, racial justice. But last week, we talked about justice and the nature of God. We talked about the fact that there is justice because God is inherently just within his nature that we desire justice because we're made in the image of God, yet we act unjustly because we're sinners. God, out of his justice, judges injustice, that he in his wrath deals with that, or there couldn't actually be true justice. But then ultimately, God is also loving and gracious and merciful. So through Jesus, he justly justifies the unjust. But then there was a a, a sixth uh, statement about justice and the nature of God that I didn't give you last week, uh, which would have been that he justifies us in order for us to live just lives. He justifies us in order for us to live just lives. So uh, that's really what we're going to build on uh, today. And uh, I want us to think about justice in a general sense today. But I want us to think about how it relates to us if we say that we're a follower of Christ, if we say that we have a relationship with God, how does it connect, how how does that connect to us doing justice? How does the idea, the, the, the reality of justice relate to us actually worshiping God? Now, It may sound like at face value that those are two disconnected things, but I want to show you that according to Scripture, they're very intimately connected uh, together. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in a letter from a Birmingham jail that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Think about that. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I think a lot of times we think about something as being outside of us or or somebody else's problem. But is that how God really wants us to look at things as a follower of Christ? You know, there's a, there's a lot of injustices that we could talk about. We could certainly talk about racial injustice, but I don't want to focus on that today because that's what the entire message is about next week. But I want us to remember, when it comes to racial injustice, that's more than a black-white kind of thing. Uh, there, there's lots of racism around the world, and we certainly should not forget anti-Semitism, which is a huge issue in our world and very close to the heart of God. We could talk about legal injustices. But I think if we're going to talk about injustice, and if injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, I would argue that possibly the the greatest injustice in the world today is the issue of abortion. 
Do you realize that there's almost a, a million abortions in the United States every year? That there's an estimated 40 to 50 million abortions per year worldwide? That possibly the most dangerous place in the world is in the womb. Where's the justice in that? Think about human trafficking. Statistics say that about 25 million people are the victims of forced labor, with about 4.8 million of those being forcefully sexually exploited, with about 1 million of that 4.8 million being children. Think about religious persecution. An estimated 70 million Christians have been martyred in history. Think about genocides around the world. Think about health care. Did you realize that maybe half the world lacks access to essential health care? An estimated 690 million people worldwide go to bed hungry each night. And folks, that's a justice issue because there's more than enough food produced in this world to feed the entire world. How does that relate to us where we are in our lives? Are those just statistics or are we supposed to do something about that? And I think sometimes we hear things and we hear numbers like this and it's so big and overwhelming that like we almost have to disconnect from it. But, you know, there are individuals and there are ways that we can make a difference and if you begin to make a difference for one, you're making a difference. And if enough people make a difference for one, then that begins to add up. The world has massive problems. Obviously, COVID is a huge problem, but it's not the only problem we have. When you read stuff like this, I'm not even sure it's the biggest problem we have. But these are really justice issues. Our world is full of injustice. But, you know, that's nothing new. It's been that way ever since the fall. And Amos was a prophet, was a man raised up by God. He was actually a sheep herder. He wasn't like a professional religious kind of guy. He was a sheep herder. And God called him and raised him up to speak a message of judgment to Israel and Judah in the 8th century because of the unjust behavior of God's people. Now, he didn't just speak to or about the people of God there in Israel and Judah. He was speaking about the injustices of people around them. But he spoke specifically and primarily to them. Why? Because... Um, God's people are supposed to lead the way when it comes to these kind of issues. Um, sin is different for those of us who claim to be followers of Christ. It's worse. And so here's what he says, God speaking through him at the beginning of Amos chapter 5. He says, hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, 
The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left in the house of Israel. He's prophesying judgment. He's saying there's going to be a remnant left, but he's saying that it's going to get really bad. Now, that's just to kind of set the stage. But, but I want us to move ahead in, in what he says here in chapter 5 up to verse 21. And then we'll kind of come back and, and read what's in between. But Amos 5, 21, because once again, I want us to think about how this subject of justice relates to the issue of worship. And here's what God said to his people then, and it applies to us today. He said, I hate I despise your feast days. That's pretty strong language, right? I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, the Lord here is not setting justice and worshiping against one another. Actually, what he's doing is connecting them together and saying you can't really have one without the other. He's saying, you can't claim to worship me. You can't follow these feasts and have these assemblies. You can't offer the sacrifices, even though they were supposed to do that, if you're living unjust lives and if you're treating other people the wrong way. Because a lot of Israel's problem was they thought just by doing the religious rituals that everything would be okay with them and God. And God is saying to them, it's not about ritual, it's about the heart. Is our heart right with him? And if our heart's right with him, it's, that's going to be expressed and exemplified, not just by our acts of worship, but also by how we treat other people. And so this is the, the big idea. This is the main idea of this that I want us to get today is that God rejects our worship when we're living unjust lives that God rejects our worship when we're living unjust lives. Once again, if we're true worshipers of the true and living God, that, could, that should and will spill over then into how we live our lives and how we relate to other people. God rejects our worship when we're living unjust lives. You say, you know, why would this be the case? Well, let me just... Um, suggest three reasons to us. Number one, religious activities do not justify injustice. Religious activities do not justify injustice. I mean, uh, think about the antebellum South and, and, and slave owners who you know, would beat their slaves one day and then go to church and then read their slaves the Bible the next day. Did um, you know, them going to church, then them reading the Bible to their slaves somehow justify slavery in the way that they were treating these people? No, God says, I hate it. I despise it. 
Religious activities don't justify injustice. But even beyond that, worship is more than a religious event or activity. Worship is how we live our lives. Now, that doesn't um, diminish the fact that we are called to worship God together corporately. It is an act. It is an event in a sense that, you know, we, we gather together and, you know, to come to church and worship in this season of the world, you must want to worship God in most cases. Maybe a few of you, somebody drug you here, but, uh, you know, your parents made you get up and get out of bed this morning. Your wife did, maybe, that kind of thing. But, um, and, and so, yes, we, we're to worship God in spirit and truth. We're to give him the glory that's due to his name. We're to uh, come into his presence with thanksgiving and rejoicing and singing and praise and, and all these kind of things. Yes, worship is that, but it's more than that. Uh, that's an expression of it, but really, true biblical worship is a lifestyle. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or it could literally be translated, which is your logical act of worship. How do we really worship? We really worship by surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ every day, doing all that we do to his glory. Uh, we worship through obedience. Uh, we, we worship in how we uh, treat other people. And if we're not living that way six days a week, then God's not really going to accept our worship on the seventh day. Ultimately, for us to do religious activities and to claim to follow Christ and to mistreat other people, to live unjustly, it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Now, you know, do we all fail to do the right thing? Do we all fail to treat other people um, right sometimes? Yes. That doesn't make us a hypocrite, but, a, uh, you know, a hypocrite, there's a difference between a sinner and a hypocrite. A sinner is someone who does wrong and admits they do wrong. A hypocrite is someone who does wrong but is trying to put on a face and pretend like everything's all right. And when we try to use religious activities to cover up living the wrong way, that's hypocrisy. And so then I think the other question would be is, you know, if we're convicted by this, if God's speaking to us through this, if, if you know, we're living unjustly, or I think one of the things that we have to wrestle with in these different examples I used or other examples we could come up with, certainly with the race issue. Let's just use the race issue for an example. It's easy to say, I'm not a racist. I think that's wrong. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Isn't there an element of it that goes beyond, hey, I'm not part of the problem here to actually being a part of the solution? And I think that's one of the things that God would say to us through this. How can I make a difference? If all these things are going on in the world, do we just sit back and say, oh, that's too big? Do we just sit back and say, that doesn't really affect me personally? But it does affect us personally if injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, if we're all ultimately tied together in the plan of God. So what do we do if we're living unjustly while claiming to worship the Lord. So let's go back to Isaiah 5, uh, starting in verse 4. And uh, let's, let's read these verses. 
And then I want to give us uh, just three things that he tells us to do here if um, we're living unjustly in some way. Amos 5.4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. Basically what he's saying, seek me, don't seek false gods, don't seek idols. You know, find your life, find your comfort, find your satisfaction, find your meaning in me. And a lot of times, especially in difficult times, it's easy to get distracted and look for comfort in in the wrong kind of places. But that's really idolatry. It says in verse six, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Says he made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and he makes the dark day dark as night. And he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. He's prophesying judgment. But then he specifically deals with justice here and he says this. He says, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate. And they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes. Um, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent can't keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, so the Lord of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. So when he's talking about the day of the Lord, the thought is, you know, um, that's when Jesus was gonna come and conquer his enemies and set everything right. And that's what they were looking for. But the Lord's saying to them, that's not gonna be an escape for you. That's gonna be a problem for you as long as you're living this way because I'm not just gonna judge uh, your enemies. I'm gonna judge you. I'm gonna deal uh, with your sin and your hypocrisy as well. And he uses these analogies. He said, it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. In other words, it's going to be like, you think this is going to deliver you? It's going to be like you're running away from a lion and you run into a bear. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. In other words, you go into the house to escape and to get bit uh, by uh, 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 a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? And then we get into verse 21 through 24. What we read before, remember again, verse 24. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And so what do these verses tell us to do uh, if 
there's un, if we're trying to worship the Lord with injustice in our lives. First of all, he tells us to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. It's a turning from sin to God. It's kind of like a, a, a U-turn, so to speak. Well, what's he tell us to repent of here? He tells us to repent of our idolatry. He tells us to repent of injustice, and we'll get back to that in a minute. He tells us to repent of hypocrisy. He tells us to repent of religious escapism, it's kind of interesting that uh, as I was, you know, knowing, I'm preaching this this morning, that someone said something to me last night that I think just exactly fits this, and, and I'm not judging the person who said it. I think this way sometimes. But she said to me, I'm looking for Jesus to come and take us out of this mess. You ever said something like that? You probably have. Uh, is it wrong to say that? No. But is it the best way to think? I don't think so. Listen, the, the Bible tells us we're to be looking expectantly for the return of Christ. It tells us to set our minds on, on, on heavenly things. It, it tells us you know, that, that that is our hope. But uh, is the reason we should want Jesus to come just so we can escape from this mess or so we can actually see and worship Jesus face to face? But even beyond that, here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that uh, God's kingdom is literally gonna come and be set up on the earth when Jesus returns. And so the kingdom is coming, but we also need to remember that the Bible teaches us that the kingdom is already here because it's in us. We are children of God. We are citizens of his heavenly kingdom. We've seen this in, in, in Ephesians chapter two. And uh, the kingdom of God is his rule and reign and righteousness. And we are his instruments. We are his hands hands and feet to bring his rule, his reign, his righteousness uh, to bear on the earth. And so this is why I call this religious escapism. Listen, we're supposed to look forward to the return of Jesus, not so we can escape everything, but that should motivate us to lead as many people to Christ as we can, to meet as many needs as we can, to help the hurting and the poor and the disenfranchised, uh, to, to make a difference, to solve problems, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be salt and light until he comes back or this mess is just going to keep getting worse. So he tells us to repent of religious escapism, make a difference. Make a difference. That's part of what it means to live a just life. Make a difference. And then he tells us to repent of empty religious rituals. That's what we saw earlier. So he says to repent. Are there things that we need to repent of in our lives? But number two, he tells us here to seek God. He said in verse four, seek me and live. He said in, in later on to seek good and, and not evil. Seek me and, and, and live. And really, this works hand in glove with repentance. I don't think we really repent without seeking God. And we can't really encounter God without repenting because we all have sin in our lives. Seeking God is turning from sin in order to draw close to him. John Piper writes of this, he says, seeking the Lord means seeking his presence. Presence is a common translation of the Hebrew word face. We are literally to seek his 
face. And, and so the Bible talks about the face of God, like he says, is indicative of the presence of God. It talks about the hand of God as indicative of the power or the activity of God. Now, in our relationship with God, do we spend more time seeking God's face or seeking God's hand? Isn't it easy to get caught up in the trap of seeking God's hand? God, do something for me. God, move on my behalf. God, help me. God, intervene in this situation. There's nothing wrong with that unless that becomes primary and seeking God's face becomes secondary. God wants us to seek his face. I mean, you know, you think about, you know, face, being face-to-face with someone. It, it, you know, that connotes I- I- intimacy and, and, and closeness. And, um, you know, we're not even supposed to do that now except in limited situations. But, uh, you know, sometimes in a relationship with God, you know, we act like somebody's got COVID and we're supposed to stay way away from each other when God wants us to come close to him to seek his face, to come into his presence, to get to know him. And that's really when he begins uh, to, to change us. And in reality, if we want God's hand active in our lives, the key is not to seek his hand, but to seek his face. He says, repent. He says to seek God. But then he says here that we are to act uh, justly. Um, he gives some specific examples here and, and, and talks about in uh, verses 10 through 14 to, um, you know, to seek justice, to hate evil, to do good. Did you pick that up? He didn't just say hate evil. He said to actually do good. I mean, it's not enough just to say abortion's wrong, for example, but How do you actually make a difference? How do you actually do good when it comes to that? It's not enough to say, oh, it's bad that uh, hundreds of millions of people are going to bed hungry tonight. How do we actually do good when it comes to that? Which, by the way, let me pause and say thank you there for everyone who's given, you know, the food distribution in Honduras. I think you've given close to $4,000 uh, now, and you can continue to do that. That's a way to make a difference somewhere we have a connection. We can't feed the whole world, but we can help feed some people that we have a relationship with there. That's how you make a difference. That's how you do justly. But, but I want to close with something. When we think about acting justly. I mean, what does that look like practically? And so I want to share with you six areas of of biblical justice. And uh, the the idea of this comes from Tim Keller. I've kind of adapted it and changed it some, so don't blame it on him. He might not claim it anymore, but I I, want to give him credit for the idea. Um, So six areas of biblical justice. You might want to jot these down. One would be generosity. I mean, how many verses are there in the Bible about serving the poor? Um, You know, you think about Deuteronomy chapter 24. When they gleaned the field, they were to leave some so that those who were without could come, and and not as a handout, but they had to work to get it, but there was some provision made for them if they would come and work and and, and get it. Generosity. I mean, uh, the Bible doesn't teach socialism, 
uh, I don't know if you say it teaches capitalism. I, I would say it probably teaches a generous form of capitalism instead of a greedy form uh, of capitalism. But generosity is, is an area of justice. Integrity is an area of justice. The Bible has a lot to say about integrity in business. It talks about balanced scales. Meaning, if, if you're an employer and you're providing a service or a good, you're giving people uh, what you're asking them to pay for. You're providing fair wages. You're taking care uh, of your workers. If you're an employee, you're doing a, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Old school kind of stuff, and it's really old school because it goes all the way back to Scripture. In, in, in government, in, in the legal system, that, that the government would function with integrity, fairness, justice for all. And of course, we know that there's much corruption there. Shouldn't be a surprise. Solomon addressed that in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Bible has a lot to say about that. You go back to the Old Testament law. If there's going to be justice, uh, it, it, yes, it's a personal thing, but it's a corporate thing. It's a business thing. It's a government thing. It's a legal system kind of thing. And the Bible addresses all of those things. A third area of justice would be equity. Leviticus 24, 22 says, you're to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born. And, and Keller puts it this way. He says, everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. That would speak against racism, discrimination, those kind of things. Fourth, he talks about that we have a corporate responsibility. And, and, and what he means by corporate responsibility is as followers of Christ, we can't just say, that's not my problem, or I don't do that. Uh, we have to realize that uh, we have some degree of responsibility uh, to the whole, that we're called to live in community. And if there's a problem, we're called to make a difference. But at the same time, we also have to remember number five, and, and Scripture has a lot to say about this. There's uh, one example. There's a whole chapter in the Bible about this. Ezekiel chapter 18 is individual responsibility. And there'll never be true justice without individual responsibility that we're all responsible and accountable for our actions. I don't care what our background is. I don't care what our socioeconomic status is. There is still individual responsibility. We can't control all the outcomes of our lives, but we can control what we choose to do. There may be things that affect us. There may be things that make it harder, but sin is still sin. Right is still right and wrong is still wrong. And we have to answer for what we do. But then he speaks of a sixth thing, and that is advocacy. Advocacy. And he says this. He says, we must have special concern for the poor and the marginalized. And why would he say that? Well, here's an example. Part of Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Did you hear that? Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Listen, I think the church in America today, and um, this is my opinion, and maybe uh, I'm doing what I'm accusing people of doing. 
I think we need to spend a lot less time ranting about what's wrong and start actually making a difference. What can we do? Who can we speak up for? Who can we stand with? Who can we help? Who can we serve? Who can we minister to? Listen, Micah 6.8 puts it this way, and let me summarize the whole thing with this. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to do what's right, to love mercy, to be full of compassion and kindness and care for others because really uh, compassion is love and action and ultimately to walk humbly with our God, knowing that we're all sinners, knowing that we're all unjust, knowing that we can't make ourselves right with God and humbling ourselves before a holy God and, and looking to Jesus like we talked about last week who came and bore our sins and rose from the dead in order to justify us, in order to give us his right righteousness in order to forgive us and to make us right with God. We have nothing to offer him. We can only come uh, admitting that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and asking for grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and, and salvation, but then realizing that the response to God's justice being satisfied in Christ through his merciful and gracious sacrifice is to then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to seek to live a just and merciful life, walking humbly with our God to serve him by serving other people, to honor him uh, by preferring others ahead of ourselves and meeting needs and making a difference and being used as individuals and as the church in building his kingdom and being salt and light and making a difference in the world because we can't ignore everything that's going on around us and, and, and fail to do justice and then come in our little holy huddles and offer up, quote, praise to God and expect God to be okay with that. It's living it out every day. It's making a difference. How can you make a difference? I'll close with this quote. Martin Luther King Jr. again said this. He said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. We certainly live in times of challenge and controversy. Will we stand on the right side? Will we stand with Christ? Will we stand for people? Will we stand uh, with the gospel and, and for the gospel? Will we stand with love? Will we stand making a difference? Or are we just going to run away and try to hide and uh, you know, just live our own little lives? Or are we going to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and uh, pray.